Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, author of the book Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. And this is a podcast designed to explore the relationship between mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Instead of having a more formal interview with someone in the field, I wanted to take this chance at the end of the year to speak to you directly, to actually record some of my thoughts about the field and what's happened since the book came out in 2018, but maybe most importantly to talk to you about both what I see happening right now and where I see the field going. I want to talk to you about reflections I've had on this past year, lessons that I've learned, stories that I've encountered, and also talk to you about my visions for where this work is going and and could go, and the visions for the future. I thought we'd start the podcast with a brief meditation. It's solstice here as I'm recording this, and with the shortest night of the year, it just feels like such an important time to be connecting with ourselves, connecting with practice. So I haven't done this on the other podcast episodes, but I'm just going to take a moment here to offer us a short guided practice as we enter into this conversation. So you can take a moment here to find a posture that works for you. We'll just be here for a minute or two. Start by feeling the body, feeling the feet on the ground, or it could be the buttocks in the chair, or if you're lying down or standing, that's also fine. Just feeling the contact points with the ground. And also taking a few conscious and deep breaths here to begin the practice. Just taking a moment here to come into your present time and space. You could start by noticing your surrounding environment, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Whether that environment is familiar, or maybe you're out in the world. But just letting your senses really notice what's happening around you. Whether through sound, or through sight or the felt experience of the air on your skin. Just letting yourself register that this is what's happening right now in this moment. Being fully aware of the context in which you're listening to this podcast and this meditation. And then an invitation here is to make some form of physical contact with yourself, whether that's a hand on the heart or a hand on the belly. could also just be the hands resting on the legs or your feet touching one another, but just making some kind of conscious contact with the, with the self, with the body. And spending a moment there to direct both presence and some compassion to yourself. This can support our presence, our sense of connection with ourselves, and both having the experience of offering this contact or also being the one who is receiving the contact. 
And then in the next few breaths, we'll shift out of this practice. So in any way that will help you transition, whether some movement, a couple more deep breaths, just acknowledging this shift. Okay. So I thought I'd start here by talking a little bit about the context of which I'm having this conversation with you all, a little bit about my story and also what's been happening in the field. So some of you will know my story, but I was practicing for a long time and ended up having a, a challenging experience on a meditation retreat. And the, both the fallout and the learning from that experience really challenged me to learn more about the intersection of mindfulness and trauma. So it's always just been a place of significant interest for me about what happens at the intersection of mindfulness and trauma, all these people doing fantastic work around mindfulness, meditation, psychotherapy, trauma. I'm really interested in what's happening inside of the field and what are the best practices for people to be in. Because I had this difficult experience and because over years I ended up coming into contact with a lot of people uh, by virtue of this book that I had written, of people that were also had had some challenging experiences around mindfulness and trauma, one of the main commitments that I've been in is to ensure that anyone practicing mindfulness has access to teachings where the people that are offering the instruction would be able to recognize trauma, respond to it skillfully, and actively prevent re-traumatization. And this has just been a place that's you know in my life and in my heart where I thought, you know, if, the, if I could offer and contribute some piece of work and methodology, not to claim like, oh, this is the answer to everything, but to say, hey, mindfulness and mindfulness practices are super helpful, very powerful, and there are ways to be practicing in a way that's trauma-sensitive, then that would be a, a life well-lived. And if there was just one person out there who ended up not having a difficult experience and not falling through the cracks inside of a contemplative environment because of this work, then it'd be worth it. All, all for the better. So that's a primary commitment that I'm in around safe practice. And it was actually, the subtitle of the book was Practices for Safe and Transformative Healing. So safe practice, and I put that in air quotes because, you know, we can only offer practice as safely as possible. We can't guarantee that any practice will be um, capital S safe all the time. But that's been a core commitment of mine is to offer the best practices that we can be in um, around ensuring that people who are struggling with trauma get the most out of mindfulness practice and don't end up having experiences that re-traumatize them. And that's not easy. That's going to be a long-term trajectory and conversation that I'm in and that I know a number of traditions have already been in for decades, if not hundreds of years. So it's nothing new. And yet there is something that I think is really important about this particular moment with the intersection of so much raised awareness around trauma and traumatic stress and survival responses that we hold and carry in the body the proliferation and popularity of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, and then those two things coming together. 
So to me, this is an ongoing dialogue. This is a conversation that will be taking place over many years. And for those of you that have done trainings with me, you've heard me talk about this. But when we talk about trauma-sensitive practice, meaning that the practices are, are sensitive to the needs of people struggling with trauma, this really comes from uh, social work, from domestic violence work, and from a history of people who were at a very practical level saying, what are the best practices here? And of course, we need to research that. And that's part of my commitment is to keep offering evidence-based practice as we go that supports trauma-sensitive mindfulness. And then at a base level, it's like, what's working? And so I've been in conversation really this last five years and especially these last couple of years with hundreds and now thousands of people all over the world about what are the practices that support them and not trying to hoard these or making them uh, you know, a particular trademarked framework that says this is the only way, but to actually say, okay, if mindfulness is being practiced at such a wide scale, what are the toolkits, what are the range of competencies that teachers and students would wanna have at their disposal so that they would be able to practice in a safe way? And then where I find my attention also going as I've had the chance the last couple of weeks to be reflecting on this last year and also 2020 and especially, honestly, this current historical moment that we're in and what's needed, I keep coming back to the second half of the subtitle of the book, which is Safe and Transformative Practice. Now, you know, to distinguish between these two in some ways is, is a false distinction. I think that safe practice is naturally transformative practice. And I think there are particular practices that we can lean into that go beyond the scope of just trying to keep people from experiencing harm. And this is something I've been waiting to talk about for a number of years inside of the mindfulness community, is that there are some profoundly powerful practices inside of different trauma modalities that in my experience can be profoundly supportive of people, all people, inside of their mindfulness practice, especially those that are struggling with trauma. In the years that I was doing training around trauma, there were so many moments inside of training environments where I'd pause, I'd be you know, writing down what I was learning, and I thought, gosh, if, this, if I had known this five years ago in the depths of my contemplative practice, it would have been awesome. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about trauma practices and different supplemental practices in any way as a substitute for mindfulness practice. It's one thing that I will and I want to keep coming back to is that trauma-sensitive mindfulness, in my view, keeps mindfulness practice at the center. The whole point of trauma-sensitive mindfulness is to enable people to come back into a formalized, rigorous mindfulness practice. It's not about um, uh, substituting the core practices and having people go off and do something completely different. To me, these are supplemental practices that can actually really support someone's core mindfulness practice, and particularly around trauma. And I hold this work for all of us, uh, both the people who I train and work with, who are mindfulness teachers and offering 
mindfulness practices in different ways. Again, that could be clinicians, yoga teachers, mindful educators. There's so many people that are offering mindfulness practices. And then also for the students and the clients and everyone that we work with. And of course, it's also for those of us that are offering practices. You know, I was just in a room of 400 people who were doing work around mindful self-compassion. And there was a moment at the beginning of the training where one of the teachers said, is anyone here just for your clients and students? And, you know, pretty much no one put up their hand. And, And it was such a helpful reminder for me about the way that for so many of us that are in this work, we came to this work or we come to this work out of a longing to heal our own suffering and to be really doing our own work. And for so many of us, that's also, that's part of our path. So I'm going to be talking for really the rest of this podcast about some of the practices and some of the ways that I'm thinking about this second half of the subtitle, about what are the transformative practices that we can start to incorporate and work with as a way to support our mindfulness practice, whether it's for just ourselves or the people that we are working with. Let me start by defining trauma, especially for those of you that haven't done much study or work around trauma or haven't done any training with me. But trauma is a term that we reserve for the most intense form of stress that we can experience as humans. And I define trauma uh, aligned with a writer named Pat Ogden, who's a trauma specialist. And she defines trauma as an event or series of events that's stressful enough to leave us feeling helpless, overwhelmed, and profoundly unsafe. And one of the ways that I like to think about trauma has to do with seasons. And, you know, I live here, I live here in California in the Bay Area, so I actually miss seasons. You know, we used to have, I grew up in Toronto and we had four seasons. And here in the Bay Area, we really have two seasons. We have um, kind of green and brown. But if you think for a moment about seasons and winter, we have this time of winter where there's a deep freeze and a period where life becomes quite still and stagnant. And for a good reason, there isn't a lot of movement. And in my experience with trauma and my study of trauma, often what accompanies a traumatic experience, especially when there are symptoms in the aftermath, is a freeze. Winter or a freeze is known as tonic immobility inside of the trauma literature. And there's so many good reasons and intelligent reasons that a freeze will happen for for humans or for mammals, really. And that freeze is what we often end up working with when we're trying to heal trauma. It's this fundamental stuckness that can create a lot of different symptoms and often a lot of shame and frustration for people. This feeling that somewhere in the body is a deep contraction and holding that doesn't seem to be releasing despite people's best intentions. This freeze leads to a profound amount, in my experience, of pain and suffering and struggle, of the body being trapped in a moment of overwhelm that it can't release. And so much of trauma work comes back to this fundamental conundrum, or not. How is it that we become unstuck? How is it that we unfreeze? 
And so when we're talking about trauma-sensitive mindfulness, that is really the fundamental question that we move towards and begin to address is how is it that a human becomes unstuck? What are the conditions that need to be in place that allow this iceberg, if you will, to release and come back into uh, the river, a river of consciousness, a river or stream of life, of movement. But especially inside that river, you could think of it like a what, what is it that allows someone to come back into the natural expansion and contraction of life? We have these natural seasons. We have this natural and almost epic contraction and expansion that is happening with the tides. It's happening in the natural world. It happens inside of history. It happens in different communities and families. There will be natural moments of expansion or opening in times of contraction or conservation. And a freeze really gets back to this feeling of contraction. You know, I think in my own life of times where I came through something difficult, where there needed to be a certain degree of vigilance, and then even when that event ended, uh, that didn't necessarily mean that my vigilance uh, just dropped out. And even though intellectually or cognitively I knew this event was over, my body was still responding in ways that suggested the threat was still here. I mean, one example is the, the last couple of summers here in California, we've had these intense fires. And there's been periods where the air quality has been very intense and there's just been this feeling of the whole community being on edge, whether it was strong, strong winds and dry conditions or just the intense smoke that was here. And even in the days afterwards, that feeling of, okay, it's, you know, people are safe, it's okay to let down, the, my body wasn't responding in that way. Now, of course, that's a very small example. I wasn't directly impacted um, by the fires as people were in um, Marin and Sonoma. But that is a small example of the ways that with overwhelming traumatic events, our body can remain frozen. Our body can remain stuck in a winter. And as I said, the question here is, what's going to support the melting? Or what's going to support coming back into that natural rhythm? And mindfulness and mindfulness practice, to me, when it comes to trauma, involves turning towards this iceberg or this deep freeze. It is a, to me, a profoundly courageous moment where instead of living over top of a deep freeze or instead of just trying to distract or do something different, what we do is we actually fundamentally turn our attention with mindfulness, with a feeling of compassion for ourselves, for others, with a quality of presence, and with a stream of steady attention, we bring our attention towards this freeze. Now, my work is about, in many ways, the fact that this is, it's a complicated endeavor. Even though that sounds simple, it's not easy to just continually bring our attention, what for this moment I'll call the iceberg. That does not mean that the iceberg necessarily thaws. In fact, this was the whole uh, gist of the work that I was doing, is to say that over-attending to traumatic stimuli, whether that's traumatic sensations or particular memories, that can actually be overwhelming. And that's where trauma work is so particular and nuanced and specialized, is that 
people get resourced and get skilled at being able to turn their attention to traumatic stimuli without overwhelming themselves. So that's the, that is really the foundation of trauma-sensitive mindfulness work, in my opinion, is ensuring that people are able to attend to that freeze or those contractions in ways that are safe. And I would say at a more general level, I hold mindfulness as a warm light that in the best circumstances, bringing mindful attention to areas of contraction in the body that are trauma relevant or just areas of contraction can be a bright light. And that's not to say that a deep freeze just lets go into the, into the river. You know, of course, many of you listening will know that it's both much more complicated than that and also takes much more time. It is a steady and almost unrelenting attention and willingness without being too tightly gripped that as I've seen it over the last 15 years that really enable people to come back into that rhythm, to come back into a sense of wholeness and healing. And I don't think it can be understated how massive and how massively important this turning and facing towards what is difficult is. The willingness of an individual or a group or a community to turn and face what is traumatic is to me one of the most courageous and moving things that anyone can do. Judith Herman, who wrote the book Trauma and Recovery, talks about trauma as the unspeakable and that really there is a tremendous amount of pressure to not talk about trauma and that it takes a certain amount of strength and self-regulation and self-knowing to be able to turn and face what's difficult. And I'm thinking about this in particular about our current historical moment and some of the massive issues in the world that we in many ways are being asked to turn and face. The obvious one here being climate and what it means to consider our ongoing impact on the planet and our sustainability over time. And this also includes the massive scale of trauma that is happening all the time all over the world, whether it comes through natural disaster, human displacement, current geopolitical conflicts, the deep polarization that's happening inside of states and communities and families. So it's a moment where turning and facing requires a lot of courage. And some of you will know this has been a major focus for me in my life and over the last 10 years of trying to be in conversation with people about what it means to turn and face harm. I've been particularly inspired by the work of Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative, where I wrote about this in the book, but they are doing work around setting up memorials around the slave trade here in the United States. And Brian speaks about this so powerfully and eloquently, really to say that in many ways here in the United States, there is often a, whether it's conscious or not, a dismissing and pushing away of painful histories of oppression here in the country. And that part of his work and with EJI and others is to really visibilize some of the painful traumatic histories that different communities have lived through here and also internationally. 
and not as a way to shame, but actually as a way to invite reflection and to not disappear trauma from our collective history, but to let it inform our current state of affairs and how we think about whose pain is legitimized and seen and whose pain is not or dismissed. That's all to say, whether it's for us individually, deep in our practice of whether we're turning to a trauma that's occurring right now, a trauma that's occurred in in the past, or adverse experiences that we live through or have lived through, or if it's turning towards the pain of a family, a community, or through historical trauma, that that is a massive move that, to me, we need in spades. We need to have that competency deeply embodied. And this is where I come back to mindfulness, where I think mindfulness is a practice and a power of mind which enables us to stay with discomfort and not check out in the face of overwhelming distress and trauma. So that's what has me continually inspired by this topic is that yes, of course, it's about making sure that people are safe and not hurting themselves inside of practice. Again, that first part of the subtitle, it's safe practice. And then it's also these transformative practices that we can be in, a deeply trauma-informed mindfulness practice that enables all of us, those of us that are teaching, those of us who simply are in practice, wherever we're coming from, that we have the skills and the competencies to be able to turn towards what's difficult in the service of coming back into a rhythm with ourselves in the natural world. And again, this isn't to try to reinvent the wheel when it comes to more traditional mindfulness practice. On the contrary, it's actually to say mindfulness is so powerful. It is such, you could think of it as a medicine, such a powerful medicine that there are some people and I include myself here for those that have struggled with trauma, that have trauma in their history, that having a more complex toolkit around trauma and mindfulness will be very helpful for them in terms of being able to self-regulate and ultimately heal. So that's what I'm really interested in is what are the practices that when combined with a more traditional mindfulness practice, say of focusing on the breath and developing shamatha, What is it that will really support those who have struggled or are struggling with trauma in the direction of healing? What will support them to move in that direction? So it's not to substitute for mindfulness, but to actually supplement it. And that's where I am looking to head in 2020, is really to be working with these quote-unquote supplemental practices or the practices that I have found over the last 10 years that most support Uh, more standardized, traditional mindfulness practice of sitting on the cushion. And I won't be claiming this as there's a path to follow, like you just do A, B, and C, and that's going to actually help you heal trauma. And I want to be clear up front that that's not what I am or will be talking about. It's actually to be in a deep conversation with the community and to say, great, what's working for you? What are the practices that you see that will support trauma survivors inside of a mindfulness environment, whether it is a day-long course or whether it is a longer retreat? And in my mind, I do have a particular framework that I'm interested in unpacking over this next year 
that I found works really well for me inside communities that I've been working within. But again, it's not a set uh, structured program that says, oh, you just have to run through it like this. It's actually to say, here's the ingredients that when I see combined with mindfulness practice seem to be very healing and liberatory. So for example, social context being one. There's so much conversation right now around difference, around identity. I mean, there has been forever, but it seems especially marked right now around power, oppression, privilege, intersectionality, and how this all plays into different contemplative communities, into trauma healing. And for those of you that know my work, I feel very strongly that any mindfulness practice benefits from an analysis around social context and trauma and oppression. That's really one of the stakes that I put in the sand is legitimizing and visibilizing the trauma that comes from historical violence and ongoing oppression, both in this country and beyond. So to me, we can't be having a conversation about a trauma-sensitive mindfulness practice without deepening into the complexities, contradictions, tensions within a conversation around social context, identity, histories of identity, what's happening right now around identity in so many different circles. And then there are other avenues as well to focus on trauma-sensitive mindfulness that I think just are incredibly useful. So one area is embodiment and somatic psychology. As I have experienced and seen, there are ways to help people generate safety internally and within groups that really involve working conscientiously with the body. And that might involve actually coming up off of a meditation cushion and having people be doing some work around consent and around boundaries. Again, all in the service of ultimately supporting their mindfulness practice and their trauma recovery over time. There's also practices around resilience, which are key. Practices that include mindful self-compassion, uh, body scans that I think can be offered in a particularly trauma-sensitive way. So there is definitely a number of options that I think all of us can be empowered to have at our disposal when we are in mindfulness practice. And then one of the places I get really curious is how do we get very skilled at knowing what tool to employ in any given moment in our practice? So even this morning, you know, I was uh, practicing and I was sitting and I got about 10 minutes in and I thought, oh, I think there's something different that my nervous system needs right now to support my practice for today. But it's going to support me to be as present as possible. And then the inevitable question in the moment was, well, then how would I know? What would tell me or what would support me to know that actually this was a moment for movement or this was a moment for actually reaching out to a friend? All of us will have different markers which tell us what it is that we can be practicing in that moment to support our regulation and ultimately support our healing. But that's a very nuanced category. I think that's a very nuanced place to be making a decision. And for 2020, I'm going to be spending more time talking about how do we and how do we help others develop the skills to be able to make that decision for themselves and really respond to life in a dynamic moment-to-moment -moment way so that people know what is being asked for. This brings me to one of the things I've been most inspired by 
this last week, thinking about everything I've learned this last year and, and witnessed and seen and all the great people that I've met um, you know, through this podcast or through workshops and online trainings, is just the sheer number of people who came to this topic and come to this topic with a genuine desire to not do harm and who come and often say something like, I'm someone who offers mindfulness practices, whether as a clinician, maybe even a yoga teacher, but often as a meditation teacher. And they say, if there's the possibility that there's someone inside of my trainings who might be running into difficulty and there's things that I could learn to help people stay more self-regulated, to ensure that the practice is as effective as it could be with them, then I want to learn that. And I think where this is uh, working well is that I'm also not coming from a place of saying that mindfulness practice is somehow broken. Actually, I'm saying mindfulness practice needs to stay at the center. And so when I'm in rooms, in communities, and I notice that people aren't getting defensive, they're not getting their backs up, because this isn't a conversation saying that anyone did anything wrong. It's actually saying this is a particular moment where there is a proliferation of mindfulness teachings and mindfulness is becoming increasingly popular in so many different domains and that we can do well, those of us who teach mindfulness can do well by this by having increased nuance around the number of people who will be accessing teachings and what their particular needs might be. Now my wheelhouse and my, my passion and my interest is around trauma. And there are conversations that are happening inside of a number of different communities, and I want to be focusing on trauma. And I just want to offer appreciation for those of you that have been listening to the podcast, that are engaged in this topic, uh, for the, the care, the concern, the genuine desire that you have to be the most competent and strongest and most effective teacher and practitioner that you can be. And I think of this as a, you know, kind of we are in this together conversation at the best of these moments where I've been teaching and getting to collaborate with others. There's a shared concern, a shared commitment in the room about utilizing and leveraging these practices with an analysis around trauma towards being able to turn and face our pain and the pain that surrounds us. That ultimately this isn't about trying to skip over or bypass anything that is traumatic, anything that really draws our attention. And speaking personally for the trauma that I've experienced in my own life, you know, I feel like there was 10 years where I was bringing the best of intention to trauma as it was living inside me and as I was experiencing it without any kind of significant results. It just honestly felt like spinning my wheels and it was sometimes devastating and often just frustrating. And so a lot of this conversation that I've been in with you all and where I expect and hope this will go in the year and years to come is to continue to refine the best practices that allows a particular segment of people who are accessing mindfulness, and in this case I mean those who are struggling with trauma, to be able to access the teachings, to be able to utilize the incredibly creative and resilient practices and tools that come from trauma studies 
and integrate them into their practice, into their approach to mindfulness. And in this year to come, what I would encourage us all to do and what I'm going to be offering is to really be trying these practices out for yourself um, in your own life, in your own practice, and then applying them where you see fit. But being in this together, being in a conversation where we're able to be grappling, chewing on best practices, and then responding to the needs of the particular historical moment that we're in. So that's what I want to end on here is an appreciation, a deep appreciation for this last year and the amount of growth and change and development that is happening within so many different mindfulness communities around trauma and an increased confidence that I feel based on a number of conversations that I've had with a number of leaders in the space uh, feeling that there's more ground now around trauma. There's a, there's a higher competence, there's more awareness, and I have the trust that there are less people who are struggling in silence inside of a contemplative community and who have practices, whether it's as simple as working with a different anchor of attention, like uh, I'm gonna actually pay attention to sound instead of my breath, or I know that I can open my eyes during practice, or approach a teacher and let them know that I'm having some difficulty. Those simple practices that so many of us have been learning this year, I think are in deep service of people who are accessing mindfulness teachings, really for all of us, but especially those who are struggling with trauma. And then my hope for the year ahead and my intention and wish is that we all continue to deepen inside of this very dynamic topic that we engage in practice, in conversation with each other, that we apply what we're learning inside of our lives and to the people that we're working with, that we bring the merits of our trauma-sensitive mindfulness practice really to areas of polarization, of stuckness in both ourselves and the communities that we're in, that we're coming back into that natural contraction and expansion that I was naming earlier, that for those of us that are in a winter, that we are in practices that enable us to access a spring and a summer and a fall, that there is that return into the stream and into that natural expansion and contraction that is all around us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking this time to be in conversation with me about this topic. I'm, I'm thrilled to be offering my own opinions and thoughts and also to learn from you all about what you need, what you're learning, and the practices that are in best service to you. So I look forward to the year ahead. We're going to have lots of great guests, a whole new bunch of people on the podcast where we can deepen in here. And then for those of you that are interested in learning more about the work, you can go to my website at davidcherlevin.com where we have lots of resources and also some courses that we'll be offering in the new year. So happy 2020. Wow, 2020. I can't believe that we're 2020. And looking forward to uh, seeing you all and, and meeting some of you in the new year. Take care. Thank you.